Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. My name is Laura Delessandri, and I'm special counsel in the Statutory Insurance Group. Today, we're going to have a look at a really sexy topic, the recovery of money, generally, but in this specific instance, we're looking at recovery from an uninsured driver on behalf of a nominal defendant. So the principles that we're going to discuss today apply the recovery of any debt or any money owing. So it can be applied to other things such as the recovery of cost orders and all kinds of things. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But firstly, let me introduce you to Daniel Ibrahim, Senior Associate in the McCabe Kerwood Litigation Dispute Resolution Group. Daniel, I don't even know what that means. So what kind of stuff does your team do? That's all right. I'll explain. Thanks so much for the introduction, Laura. Look, we're a general commercial litigation practice, so we we deal with a, a wide range of disputes. Our, our sort of bread and butter would have to be contractual disputes, uh, property disputes, fights between different shareholders of companies, but a large part of what we do is the insolvency and debt recovery work for all types of industries and clients across the board generally. And that is what got my attention. So recently, Daniel and I teamed up. So I'd resolved a CTP claim where the claimant had accepted a CARS award. We acted as agent for the nominal defendant in circumstances where the vehicle at fault was not insured. So we went about the task of recovering the monies that was paid to the claimant, both the award and the costs, from the uninsured driver slash owner. The first step was to establish whether the uninsured had any assets, and this guy did, okay, at a number of properties. So all of a sudden we're like, yes, we're actually going to be able to recover some money. So the first thing I did was obtain a judgment for the debt amount. Now, that wasn't actually very difficult because the uninsured driver just didn't turn up and we got a default judgment. So I got the easy part. The difficulty came when it was time to enforce our judgment. And that's when I handballed the whole thing over to Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that, Laura. (laughs) No, we we were happy to be given that brief. We probably shouldn't reveal the driver's name for obvious reasons and keep things anonymous, Laura. So what what do you think about referring to uh, him or her as driver X? How about that? (laughs) Got a nice ring to it, I think. I like it. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, as Laura has already mentioned, this was a matter that was identified as commercially viable to pursue because this um, debtor, so Driver X, had three properties registered in his name and we had a judgment debt of of more than $200,000. So definitely a worthwhile one to run as far as the client is concerned. There are many ways a creditor or a judgment creditor should or can, can find out if a debtor has sufficient assets. I'm not going to go through them in this podcast, but one simple method is obviously to conduct searches of publicly available registers and information to see if there's any real property registered in their name or any shares held in Australian companies, etc., etc. You know, after going through those sort of threshold inquiries and searches, then you, you form a view that, okay, it is worthwhile incurring costs to pursue this debt and let's go for it. So 
it was commercially viable. Three properties there don't have the information uh, as to how much equity is in those three properties, but as a starting position, it's, it's pretty good. As it turned out, DriverX was asset rich because he had the three properties, but cash flow poor because our garnishment order issued to his bank didn't result in any sort of savings being recovered or or net funds being handed over. I've forgotten about the garnishment orders. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, so the garnishee was no good, but that's okay because ultimately we had formed the view that DriverX was insolvent uh, despite having the three properties but would want to avoid bankruptcy for obvious reasons. So that meant we could issue a bankruptcy notice against him. The test, by the way, for insolvency is a cash flow test. So if so- someone isn't able to pay their debts as and when they fall due, they're considered insolvent. Now, assets can be used to try and show that uh, someone isn't insolvent, but those assets must be available to be turned into cash or liquid assets within a relatively short period of time. So the, the authorities um, have generally said within a period of about three months, if it can be turned into liquid assets, then it'll be taken into account. So we commenced bankruptcy proceedings in the Federal Circuit Court of Australia those proceedings were opposed by Driver X, who unsurprisingly argued that he was solvent and should not be made a bankrupt because he had these three properties with sufficient equity in them. Uh, he really yep. didn't want to be made bankrupt because he um, travelled overseas regularly. And I think one of the conditions is there's restrictions on your travel, overseas travel. That's right, Laura. There's a whole variety of restrictions, including travel. Um, there are limits as to how much income you can earn before you have to hand over the excess to the trustee in bankruptcy. Uh, it's a black mark, if you will, on your record forever. So, you know, even after the bankruptcy period is finished, lenders will be able to see that that's happened, which, you know, could have adverse implications for a whole series of things. So, so very serious consequences of bankruptcy. And for that reason, actually, the court allowed Driver X to have an adjournment of the bankruptcy proceedings to allow him to sell one of these three properties because he put on evidence that he could do that and then there would be sufficient assets to pay our client. So the court did agree to grant an adjournment for Driver X to take steps to sell one of the three properties in order to, to pay us. Whilst we're waiting for that to take place, all of a sudden, in a remarkable twist of events, Driver X decided to challenge the underlying judgment. So for whatever reason, he became at that stage unwilling or unable to sell the property and had engaged new lawyers, which adopted a totally different course. Uh, They decided to file an application seeking to set aside the default judgment uh, issued. What I said was (laughs) the bit I did that was really easy (laughs) suddenly came unstuck. (laughs) That's right. So, you know, the once very straightforward process of getting a a default judgment is all of a sudden being scrutinised and looked at very carefully because Driver X was alleging, get this, that he was overseas at the time of the motor vehicle accident and also overseas at the time we say he was personally served with the statement of claim. So we're talking about two different periods of time, you know, that are, I think, are about two or three years apart. So, you know, a remarkable coincidence. Uh, 
Yeah. everything this case. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So basically he was arguing a case of mistaken identity and, and was saying that the police got it wrong when they attended the scene of the car accident and took a statement from someone who was pretending to be him and also that there was someone pretending to be him when the statement of, of claim was served uh, on him personally a few years later. So it was just, just remarkable. So as you can imagine, alarm bells are going off in our minds because if it really wasn't him, why would he wait until the bankruptcy proceedings had commenced and before coming out and simply saying, look, guys, it wasn't me, you've got, you've got the wrong guy here, you know, rather than saying, give me time to sell one of my properties to pay you. So that was a red flag. We were very, very... So many opportunities. That's right, so many opportunities. so many opportunities along the way to just uh, come out and say this if it was in fact true we were very suspicious needless to say but on the other hand driver x had put into evidence a document that he had allegedly obtained from the department of home affairs showing his international travel movements in and out of australia over the relevant period so this is an official government record which did in fact on its face showed that he was overseas on both occasions. So when, when the car accident happened and when the um, the statement of claim was personally served. So we, we were totally blown away by this new evidence. And because of this document, the bankruptcy court, uh, so the Federal Circuit Court said, look, I'm going to adjourn the bankruptcy proceedings until Driver X has had his day in the district court in trying to set aside this judgment and you guys can get to the bottom of this so-called mistaken identity argument. So off we go to the district court and uh, to complicate things even further, Driver X was or had legally changed his name over the relevant period and had multiple passports and other identity documents issued in both names, right? So he had about six different names. Yeah, possibly. I mean, <laughs> certainly something we needed to get to the bottom of. But look, this this basically left us in a situation where if we were going to maintain the judgment, we had to prove that Driver X was in the country at the relevant time of the accident and it was him that was personally served with the statement of claim and it's not a case of mistaken identity. So that's quite an involved task to do in the face or in an application where it's not really one where the court needs to test the evidence to the same degree that they would in a final hearing. It's uh, They only have to be convinced that there's an arguable case there and a reasonable explanation for the delay and the judgment will be set aside and it goes through the normal channels to a final hearing. Comes back um, to me to start again. Yeah, exactly, which would be a nightmare for our client having gotten to the bankruptcy proceedings to then have to be forced to start all over again. So it's quite a low threshold to set aside a a default judgment, so understandably we were quite worried. But nonetheless, we did not give up hope. We decided to oppose the application seeking to set aside the judgment we issued about to do that we issued about 10 subpoenas to third parties to collect all this evidence including the department of home affairs where this document had come from showing the travel movements to verify that it in fact was a legitimate document and that it was the same as the document that driver x had put into evidence 
We also subpoenaed the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for all of the passports issued to him in, in all of the different names, the Roads and Maritime Service for driver's licences, the New South Wales Police for the police statements taken at the scene of the accident and the criminal record showing the traffic infringements that he was charged with on the back of that accident. We should have spent it to his bank for credit card statements to show either domestic or international transactions on the bank statements because that might assist as well. So after having gone through this, you know, forensic exercise, remarkably we found out that the record of international travel that Driver X produced in the proceedings was different to the version that was produced to us by the Department of Home Affairs. So <laughs> so, in other words, either Driver X or someone known to him had falsified a government record to try and make it look like he was overseas at the time, right? So <laughs> our inquiries eventually, it all made sense in the end. We put all of that evidence before the district court and because of it, the court refused to set aside the judgment, saying that it was clear that Driver X did not have any real defence and that he was, in fact, relying on falsified documents. So that was a good win for the client because, as I said, the bar for setting aside a default judgment is generally quite low. Yeah. And so what that meant then was we could then go back to the Federal Circuit Court bankruptcy proceedings and press on, but knowing that he had run out of options and that he was about to be made a, a bankrupt, I think within the space of about seven days from the district court judgment, our client received a cheque for the entire judgment debt plus interest, which I think came to a total of about 270000 So, nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> on top of that, he was ordered to pay our client's legal costs of both the, uh, the bankruptcy proceedings and the district court proceedings. So a very good result in the end for the client indeed. Absolutely. So I think um, the lesson learned is that it's really straightforward and it's really easy, but it can be done and it should be done. So <laughs> especially with the cost order, you know, that he's got to pay. So, oh, so good, Daniel. It was so exciting. I felt like a bit of a private detective going, <laughs> going through all of this, the, the evidence and the process. But, yeah, that sometimes you just have to sort of trust your gut instinct and, and hopefully the evidence will lead to where it should be. Yeah, and I think I should also say it's not always as sensational as this one, but we definitely want to do this work. Uh, we definitely want to recover money on behalf of our clients. And I'll go through a couple of the implications. So you, your listeners, you can have a look at, at your files and see if you've got these ones with these kinds of issues in them. So the nominal defendant's right for recovery or the right to recover from an uninsured driver and or owner. It's found in Section 39 of the MACA, or the equivalent is Section 2.37 of the Maya. Those sections are identical, and the reference in the Maya is made to a claim which is defined as both a claim for statutory benefits or a claim for damages. So there's no change to the way we operate since the new Act has come in. But there are also other situations where the recovery of monies paid should be considered. So we talked briefly just then about the recovery of costs. So when insurers are successful um, and there are cost orders, look at recovering those costs. There's recovery from third-party tort feasors. I hate that expression. It's a fancy way of saying 
someone else that was at fault. <laughs> so, for example, the RMS. Peter Hunt did a podcast recently, episode number 80. I'll link it below. But that um, in that he talked about a CTP insurer's right to recover statutory benefit from third-party tort feasors. Another example is the recovery of payments made through deception or fraud. And so in those circumstances, there's a right to recovery. You may want to have a listen to Hamira's commentary on that. So that was episode 14, so a while ago. But in that, she spoke about section 118 in the MACA, which uh, the equivalent is now section 6.42 of the Maya that talks about remedies available where a claim is fraudulent. And, uh, yeah, so section 118, if you listen to episode 14, it permits the recovery of payments obtained through deception. Daniel, thank you for, like, <laughs> coming along to our the Statutory Insurance Proper Lookout podcast. We um, love having guests. No problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, look, I, I just might add one thing. Look, sometimes clients can be a bit hesitant to try and, especially some of the larger clients are hesitant to enforce judgments due to, you know, reputational risk or, or whatever the case might be. In that instance, you know, we can provide sort of a prospects advice or a commercial viability advice and just sit down and look at everything from all angles to determine whether it's worthwhile going ahead before anything is done. Yeah, so, so that's something I would also recommend if anyone has any hesitations in enforcing a judgment. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, good point. All right, and so we'll talk to you again soon, Daniel, I hope. And until everyone listening, we'll see you next week on the Proper Lookout podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at mccabecurwood.com.au or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.